0: How have you dealt with friends and neighbors in your life who consider themselves part of the LGBTQ community? The attitudes and lifestyles presented by the LGBTQ acronym make up one of the most controversial and divisive issues facing us today. And I don't just mean as a culture, I'm talking about within the church. It's one of the top three topics that I get asked the most questions about as a Christian apologist. As Christians, we've been commanded to love our neighbors and even to love our enemies and people who consider themselves LGBTQ can be both. So it's time to figure this out. In today's episode, we're going to learn how to do exactly that. This is Worldview Legacy, the show that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders that their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedeckes. I am a Bible teacher and a former pastor who used to defend the Christian worldview the completely wrong way until God changed my attitude and my approach. And now I help people to share and defend their faith with confidence and to pass it on to the younger generation. We're going to answer the question today, how should you deal with LGBTQ friends as a Christian? When it comes to articulating And defending the Christian worldview and living out your faith in your local area. This is the stuff that you have to get your head around and your heart around. And when it comes to your kids, when it comes up with your kids in conversation, you're going to want to be ready. This episode is going to help you treat people who consider themselves LGBTQ in a way that is based and that stands uncompromisingly on the word of God and that emulates Jesus Christ. Today, you're going to hear from our guest, Dr. J. Allen Branch. Dr. Branch wrote the book, 50 Ethical Questions, Biblical Wisdom for Confusing Times. He is an ethicist. He's an ethics professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he has a really fascinating personal story. He's basically the perfect person to bring in to talk about this. So if you have people in your life who identify as LGBTQ or are questioning whether they might be, or hey, even if you yourself have dealt with those temptations, or maybe you're praying for opportunities to reach out to other people who consider themselves to be LGBTQ, or listen, if you just want to know how to handle this issue as a Christian and to lead your family well in living out your faith in light of this issue, this episode is for you. Dr. Branch begins by telling us some of his own personal story, and then he's going to get into answering several questions about sexuality from a Bible based perspective. The questions that he's going to answer include How has society's attitude towards LGBTQ people changed over the years? What is a woman? And what is a man? Why is men playing women's sports really such a problem? What is the hidden darker side of the LGBTQ movement? How can Christians evangelize LGBTQ people? What are the inherent contradictions in the LGBTQ movement? Why are boundaries and unconditional love both important with your LGBTQ friends? When might it not be a good idea to counsel a same-sex attracted person to get jumped into a marriage? Why are biblical revisionists' arguments nonsense and should you go to a same-sex wedding, and what if it's a loved one? Now, if you like this kind of stuff, learning how to articulate and live out and defend the teachings of God's Word, then you will definitely want to know about our free community. It's called the Think Squad. There are now 675 other members there who are on the same journey you are. Think Squad members share ideas, insights, and interests, and get solid biblical answers to questions that the world is asking. It's a lot of fun. And it's where you can get a better understanding of logic, science, morality, and the other tools of knowledge. The Think Squad is extremely based by God's grace, and I'll tell you more about the group and how to join at the end of the show. Now, let's get into it with Dr. J. Allen Branch.
1: I'm Dr. Allen Branch. I teach ethics at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I've been here for almost 21 years.
0: And you're originally from Georgia, correct?
1: I am. Yes, I am.
0: So could you trace a little bit of your own history? I know there's a long and storied road that brought you to where you are now. So how did you get there?
1: Well, I was born again at Vacation Bible School when I was 10 years old at New Canaan Baptist Church in Dallas, Georgia. It was a very rural area at the time, but it's not rural anymore. Atlanta has swallowed it up since then. And I was called to preach at a revival by led by an evangelist named Perry Neal when I was 20 years old in April of 1988 and my wife and I married later that year. I went to seminary. I finished college at Kennesaw State and went to seminary at Southeastern, and I pastored a church in North Carolina for eight years, Turner Memorial Baptist Church. We had a great ministry there and finished my PhD at Southeastern Baptist Seminary under Dr. Dan Heimbach in 2000, and I came out here in 2001 And that's the short story, but that's how we've been here. Lisa and I have been married for 33 and a half years now.
0: 33 and a half years. Awesome. What's your secret? Uh, Jesus Christ. Amen. (laughs) Amen. That's awesome. My wife and I recently celebrated our 12th anniversary. So we have people ask us that, you know, younger couples, Well, oh, what's your secret? Right. What's your secret? So I always have to make sure that I ask guys like you who've been married 30 plus years, because then I'll just take whatever you say and I'll just pass that on to the guy who's been well, married.
1: Well, I was two, a chaplain in the Army Reserves. My soldiers asked me that quite a number of times. and I always told them it was Jesus and they didn't believe me. They thought it was something else. Really? And so I, I find that lost people frequently, if you tell them that Jesus Christ really is the answer to these sort of things. They look at you with a bit of disbelief, like you're just towing the company line. I really mean it from the bottom of my heart. I really do.
0: Can you flesh that out? How does your Christian faith and studies and theology, how does that impact the day to day in your relationship with your wife?
1: Well, the most important thing is that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. And he said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's our example. And I want to be a good servant to my wife and to try to demonstrate the sort of humility that Christ demonstrated in Philippians chapter two, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped. So he humbled himself and became Mm -hmm. obedient to death. And for me as in the home with both my wife and my adult children now and my son-in-laws, it's strive towards a humble spirit and strive towards a humble attitude that's modeled on Christ himself I mean, the humility of the Incarnation is overwhelming that God, the eternal second person of the Trinity would become man, take on flesh. And I think C.S. Lewis is indeed right. It's like trying to imagine yourself becoming a slug or a worm or something.
0: And a slug or a worm, among other slugs and worms that have been rebelling against you their (laughs) whole lives. It's
1: a good qualifier. That's exactly Mm. right. That's exactly right. So Lisa and I have... We uh, in fact Tuesday night is our devotion night. We don't pray together every day, but every Tuesday night we have we read the Bible and pray together. We get caught up on each other's prayer requests and prayer needs, and uh, that's what I'll be doing this evening.
0: And you were a chaplain in the Army Reserves, 2009 mm-hmm. to 2013.
1: Is that right? That's right. I joined to do a deployment. I didn't join until I was 42 years old. And for any veterans watching, I joined because I wanted to go downrange. And I got with the unit over here in Topeka, not far from Kansas City, the 821st Transportation Battalion. If any veterans watching, they're familiar with a vehicle called a heavy equipment transporter. It's just called a HET in the military. Mm. And that's what we drove. And we were based in Kuwait at Arifjan, which is a bit like Disney World as far as army bases go. But we did missions in and out of Iraq, hauling around the implements of war. And I rode on a lot of those. And then... Some of my soldiers were sent to Afghanistan on about 90-day orders towards the end of our deployment, and I spent a, a brief amount of time flying around Afghanistan visiting my soldiers there.
0: What does downrange mean?
1: That means to deploy to the Middle East. I see.
0: You've had quite the career. As you think back on the different stages of your life and ministry, what's been the most impactful for your work in ethics?
1: talking to people one-on-one individually sharing Christ in people's homes when you go out and try to do evangelistic work and sitting down in someone's home that's where you get to know people and find out what they're thinking and what their objections to the gospel are many times when i was a young man i had some very very squared away people that introduced me to an evangelism program called evangelism explosion Mm. and Mm -hmm. i was trained in how to share my faith that way and that was a great tool for me it may not be for everybody but for me it really fit And I spent a lot of time in my life uh, sitting in people's homes trying to—you set up those appointments, try to talk to folks about Christ, contacts you've made through the church or whatnot. And that's really the most impactful thing is talking to people Mm -hmm. one-on-one and individually about what it means to follow Jesus Christ and listening to what they say. Quite a number of objections to the gospel are ethical ones, and that's only become more so in recent years. It's frequently the first objection people have to Christians. When I was a young man, it's, well, how come you people don't drink, smoke, and cuss? But now it's, what is your, why is it your stance on LGBTQ issues? It's gotten broader. And and one of the odd things that's happened in the culture is, especially the LGBTQ activists, I have to commend them as a group. And to one degree, and that they have repositioned themselves from a hated minority to a privileged minority. And it's, quite amazing really the transition that's taking place in my lifetime and the ability to reposition the moral debates from one about right and wrong to about identity and it's not about behavior anymore it's about my identity mm-hmm. and that the way that I self-identify is governing really the principle that's at work there is moral autonomy and the idea that I am the center of my own moral universe and I should be allowed to achieve the maximum pleasure that I can in my own life. So a lot of things come together, radical moral autonomy, a little bit of utilitarianism thrown in with a little bit of Kantian emphasis on human moral autonomy at the center of the universe. And these systems individually contradict each other, but you put them all in the blender and voila, you have 2022. I do want you to know whatever else I do and don't know. And I did not graduate from Harvard. I do know what a woman is. (laughs) I want you to know that. I want your listeners to know that I can define that term for you. Could you define
0: that for us as an ethicist? Okay. (laughs) So what's a man? What's a woman? Let's get that on the table now.
1: No, it's very easy. A man has an X and Y chromosome and a female has X chromosome, except for some freakishly rare instances of disorders of sexual development, but we'll set those aside. And a male has, I'm not going to, get into the details, but a male has male genitalia and a female has female genitalia and a male has male secondary sex characteristics and a female has female secondary sex characteristics. So I think that's a pretty workable definition.
0: Yeah. I was reading through your credentials. I I didn't see anything in there about uh, be, becoming a biologist. Are you saying that you're, actually, you're able to actually answer this question without being a biologist? That's really Hey, important.
1: listen, people made fun of Paulding County, Georgia, where I grew up at as being, you know, just kind of a bunch of country hicks. But we hmm. did learn that at good old Paulding <laughs> County High School. So God bless Paulding County High School. They taught God me that. God bless them. And so the next question is, what's the next big thing? Um, so I, I suspect some of these r- rapidly emphatic I really am something else assertions are going to get tension within the movement itself let me give an example it's this young man who's swimming as a female for pin what was it the 200 meter freestyle Leah I Thompson
0: think? or w- William Thompson well, he's gone by I'm Leana. sorry
1: I've lost the name right now I do apologize but the listeners know to whom we're referring yep mm-hmm. and it's very interesting. He's very, and yes, I call him he, <laughs> but mm-hmm. very ecstatic about this these wins. A number of years ago, I read The Transsexual Phenomenon by Harry Benjamin, which is the first really major pro-transsexual book written in the United States from a really academic perspective. Harry Benjamin was an endocrinologist in New York. He wrote the book when he was 85, I think, and the book is... His story of dealing with tons of transsexuals, he was one of the first people to write prescriptions for cross-sex hormones, and he didn't perform surgeries. He's an endocrinologist, but he connected them with people in Casablanca and in Europe who would do the surgeries. And Harry Benjamin said something very interesting, the transsexual phenomenon. He's in favor of these folks doing this, but he talked about the self-centered nature of a lot of his patients, that they're very self-obsessed that's frankly what you see with leah thomas this is self-obsession well i know this isn't fair but it's about me and my identity but the point is it's not fair i read some data in a peer-reviewed article i forgot where it's at but a couple of years ago that after one year of taking cross-sex hormones the average male taking cross-sex hormones still has over 50 percent more muscle mass than the average female they're just going to have wow. more muscle mass. Yeah. I read I read a very fascinating study from uh, a couple of years ago. I just read it last week. And these guys were trying to find out what's the difference between a male's ability to punch and a female's ability to punch. So they're trying to discern what's the difference in raw punching power between a male and a female. I had a small sample. I think it was 20 males, 19 females. But it was pretty well structured. And it's an interesting study. And they were looking for people who had no training in martial arts or boxing because they thought that would be a good baseline and not give one person an advantage. Okay. And here's what they found. The average male out of those 20 males over 19 females had 162% more raw punching power than these females. Wow. And the reason is the male shoulders are broader. I'm sure. not a big guy, but the standard for me is not someone like Muhammad Ali's daughter who's a professional boxer. The standard for sure. me is just another average female, right? Sure. So sure. even a, a guy like me who's not a big guy, my shoulders are going to be wider than the average female's shoulders. And that's just raw physics. So the average male is just going to have more punching power. And that's just designed. Nothing can change that. Right. And the data was very interesting because, uh, again, a small sample granted that offers some limitations. But what was interesting is, in a lot of data like running or jumping, there's overlap. For example, there's someone like the incredibly gifted American sprinter, Florence Griffith Joyner.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And she's faster than, I don't know how many percentage of the men on the face of planet Earth, or she was, right? Yeah. But in this data, there's no overlap. It, It was almost like two separate data sets. It was so strikingly different. Wow. But let me give you another point that I think that's of interest of difference between males and females. Roger Bannister, the famous amateur runner who became a physician, broke the four minute mile in nineteen fifty four. It's a I'm a runner, but I'm well, I'm not fast, but I love to run, so I'm up on these things. He broke the four minute mile in nineteen fifty four. It is now twenty twenty two. No female has ever come close to breaking the four minute mile in sixty eight years. None. The fastest time for females right now, I put this out on Twitter. It's something like four minutes, four minutes, twelve seconds.
0: Mm. But
1: they're not anywhere close to getting below four. The fastest time for a male now is one of these freakishly gifted athletes from Eritrea or Ethiopia or Kenya. I can't remember, but it's about 3:44 for the male. So you still got a th- almost a 30-second difference in the mile. Between a male and a female, but I want to stress: it's been 68 years since Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. No female has come close yet. Wow! There, there are just basic differences between males and females that can't be denied. Yeah. And um, we had and, it's just very so th- th- those are things like that that are just obvious, and I think it in time are going to push the movement to its breaking point. I think, but I could be wrong.
0: And still to this day there has yet to be a man who has given birth to a child.
1: <laughs> I've heard so that.
0: Women still I've have heard that, that going on us as well.
1: <laughs> I've heard that. I've heard that. Another really defining experience for me in ethics was uh, my wife is a nurse. And when we moved to Kansas City in 2001 to come here to Midwestern, my wife uh, returned to school, finished her nursing degree. And for seven years, she was an emergency room nurse here in the Kansas City area. And I have to tell you, that was a real educational experience in and of itself. I thought I was aware of, of what was going on, and I had a level of awareness. But I was completely naive about what human beings do to the body in the name of pleasure. Hmm. And my wife typically worked three, to, two to three shifts a week. and we, Because where the kids were at and where we were at in life, it worked well for her to work the night shift. And you get a lot of craziness in the night shift. Mm. and the sort of things that that she encountered on every shift at the emergency room i felt like the country boy who'd come to town and and didn't know anything and just mm. and it's quite distressing i mean the things that people do in, in the name of pleasure to the human body it's never i've never gotten over it i suppose mm. and it changed our definition of what it means to say that man's a sinner quite profoundly mm. we knew people were sinners and they're self-centered but working in the ER, I think police officers and firemen and first responders would have the same experience. I think they would tell you a lot of the same things. Sure. it's It really profoundly shapes, theologically, right, I mean, Genesis 3, yes, Romans 5, we get it. But until you've seen it up close and personal and what how bad, bad can get. And if there's something that I think a lot of young people don't understand, they're very up to date with all the hip, cool terms. and the uh, the ability to virtue signal in the right way. In fact, they're better at that than I am. I don't even know what I'm supposed to say. i not say the book you have there. They deleted the word John Wayne out of it. They didn't want me to mention John Wayne in the book. Some one of the editors panicked. Yeah, out of that book, in, they one of the really. Yeah, they yeah they panicked because I mentioned John Wayne. There was this book. One of my Jesus colleagues, and John Wayne. Yeah. One of my, I'd, I'd never heard of it. I, that shows how far off I am. And one of my mm-hmm. colleagues said, well, it's only a bestseller. I said, well, there's a lot of bestsellers i never heard of, but <laughs> right. they wanted me to delete it. And so we did, but then they wanted to delete Chuck Norris, and I fought them on that. And I said, no, we, we got Chuck, John Wayne out, but I made a funny reference to Chuck Norris at one point. Yeah. So I said, no, that's staying in.
0: It's a good thing that uh, they didn't try to remove him because there's a lot of people that editors can remove from books. But one thing about Chuck Norris is Chuck Norris removes the editor.
1: So, <laughs> that's a good line you, you don't want to
0: that's tweetable you don't want to mess with mess i think of all chuck. the chuck
1: norris jokes my friend mean, i'm told he actually likes those but of all the I've chuck norris that. jokes my favorite one is chuck norris has a bear rug it's not dead it's just afraid to move right
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so good
1: my point being that young people are better at at how to say the right thing and not the wrong thing, and according to the ever-changing rules of the game on social media now. And I'm not. But what I know that they don't know is they don't have a clue how bad bad can be, and how sinful sinful can get, and how evil evil can get. And if there's a concern I have is that uh, this naivete about oh all these people are really gentle, kind, and good, and you know they're going to treat me right. No, they're not. I mean, some of these people are selfish evil and you are a target of
0: opportunity for them who who uh, which people are you thinking of
1: yeah the or sexually the sexual traffickers the the porn crowd the men that have imbibed in a we live in a porn culture yeah and the men that have fed themselves on that not to mention some elements in the transgender movement they are looking listen listen It's been well said uh, when it comes to LGBTQ issues. And when I say things like this, people think, well, you're fomenting hate. No, I'm I'm not. I love people and I care about people. But here's the truth. If you're going to have a same-sex wedding, apart from artificial reproductive technologies, you're not going to have children. So you better have converts. And one of the things that was said 25 years ago was oh, why are you guys worried about same-sex marriage and all this sort of stuff? This is a stable evolutionary trait. It just occurs in a minority of people. And if we make all this legal, it's not going to change anything, and the occurrence is not going to change. But we now know that's not true. The occurrence of these things has increased. Yeah, especially in Gen Z. Yes, and so the way you shape a moral environment does affect the next generation. And I don't say that to engender fear because I've been called a homophobe and I'm not a homophobe. I don't fear homosexuals. I don't fear mm-hmm. transgender people. I fear for anyone that does what God says don't do. When I was a pastor in North Carolina, I had uh, two homosexual men that were my neighbors. And I want you know, I was their friend and they were my friend and they were good neighbors. I lived in a parsonage for seven years. One time the roof was leaking on the parsonage and one of these men, Daniel, was up there trying to help me Repair the roof. And well, I'd talk to them about Christ. And when I talk to them about Christ, they push away, they push away, they push away, and they don't want to hear. And then they'd warm up a little bit more. And then I'd talk to them about Christ, and they push away and push away. Hmm. Well, they're both passed away now. Dennis died of natural causes. But Daniel, I won't get into the details because I don't think it's really helpful to describe just really vile things. But Daniel was into practices, and he wound up dying from that. And I won't describe his death scene to you, but it's horrid. And Will and Grace presents one picture of what same-sex love is all about, but there's a whole other side to all of that and when you experience things like we all have stories and the lgbtq community has very effectively used powerful and moving stories the Obergefell versus hodges decision is really an example of one of those where this dying person has to be flown to maryland to get a wedding and all these sort of things or was Mm -hmm. i can't remember what state it was they flew to it's a tragic story but there's a whole nother set of stories that we can have as well and I think we're going to have a whole group of stories in the next five to 10 years when young people who were told at age 10, 11, and 12, you need to go on puberty suppressing drugs and we need to put you on cross-sex hormones. And let me tell you, a 10-year-old can't give informed consent to that. They do not understand to what it is they are giving consent. And a lot of really conscience awakened adults think they're doing the right thing for their children. And I would suggest that they are not. It's not a good idea chemically to castrate young boys. It's not a good idea chemically to make young women infertile for the rest of their life. That's not a good idea. So I'm not for it. And to alter their bodies in ways that are, are irreversible at such a young age. And I don't say that because I'm afraid of anyone. I fear for what's happening to people. And I love people. I realize that some people have feelings and desires and attractions that I may have never experienced. I think one thing my LGBTQ neighbors hear when they hear us as Christians talk about sexual ethics, I'm afraid what they hear sometimes is that we are saying, you guys are broken and we are not. Right. And that's not true. It's not that we are saying some other group of people is broken and we are not. What we should be saying and what I hope we're saying is we are all broken in different ways. And we all need the grace of Jesus Christ and all of us for whatever it is that we're facing. And I think if we can get that message across, at least it could create perhaps a more helpful conversation. Yeah. And I love people and I care for people and really a great deal of what I've done in my life when teaching ethics is really has an evangelistic focus. I want people to come to know Jesus Christ. I want them to repent of their sins and believe on Jesus.
0: To what extent did your education prepare you for the kind of experience you just described?
1: Oh, very much so. I was blessed to be able to study under a very gifted man, Dr. Daniel Heinbach. He's really very gifted. By the way, he has a book on ethics. He's getting close to retirement now. But Dr. Heinbach was the junior undersecretary of the Navy in the Bush One administration. And he wrote George Bush Sr.'s Just War Policy for Gulf War One. And he's a graduate of the Naval Academies and then uh, highly qualified with his education phd from drew and the trinity evangelical divinity school as well and i was just really uniquely blessed to study under him he pushed me in a lot of ways and uh, i think made me a better writer a better thinker and he was very frank and very direct and in feedback and what was good and what wasn't good but uh, he's just a really really gifted person and it, the key thing is he helped me to be a good thinker and to always make sure that you do your research and get your data right and go to the primary sources. Go to the primary sources. Don't trust what someone else is saying about the secular person or, you know, for example, an LGBT, LGBTQ author. Go to that author themselves and dig into the primary sources. I, my Ph.D. was all about autonomy and medical ethics. And that was a good topic to study because so much of ethics today is autonomy-driven. Mm. and it was a good choice I had a man named Nigel Cameron that was an outside reader on my PhD and it's a great honor I mean he's a, a, a great bioethicist and taught at TEDS for a number of years oh. and he's just a really good guy so I was really had two really good names on my PhD with Dr. Heinbach and Nigel Cameron it means a lot to me today the best book oh my, on sexual oh ethics God. as a general topic that I've ever read is his book from 2004 True Sexual Morality it's extremely well done, and I just lost the name of his new ethics book that's about to come out. I'm sorry, so sorry, but no problem. I am writing an endorsement for it, and I've looked at a lot of it. It's really quite good.
0: Circling back to something that you had said, you mentioned really briefly off the cuff, which tells me you've studied it quite a bit, but the Kantian human moral autonomy right. idea and how the LGBTQ plus movement holds these different right. philosophies in tension or in contradiction Can you flesh that out a little bit?
1: Sure, I will. Most modern thinkers don't really have a coherent ethical system. It's a mishmash of different systems. It's a broad spectrum. There's a lot of dissension within the spectrum. There's a dissension with feminists and some of the transgender folks. But that's been going on for a long time. I, I don't know where it's going to go. I suspect it's going to become more broad as opposed to less broad. At some point, there will be tensions within the own the movement itself i think what happens is think of it this way if you are a lesbian and you feel attracted to other women and then a male comes to you and says i know i have a male body i know i have a male body but i'm really female because that's how i identify and i really want you and i to have a relationship, and the lesbian says, "No, I'm attracted to females, and you're not a female. You're denying my identity." And it be- turns into this sort of internal strife between them. Mm-hmm. What they'll all agree on is Alan Branch is wrong. <laughs> whatever, whatever, <laughs> whatever. So the the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Is how yeah. a lot of this is going to to tease out. I will tell you that there are many people within. I'm now only referring to the homosexual community, lesbian and gay. There are many people there that when we bring up the issue of child exploitation, there's many of them that agree with us. They actually believe that sex should be limited to adults and that they don't want to. Now, the challenge is they know there are people in their movement that are pushing for lowering of age of consent laws. And... I think that's gonna create a tension in their own movement. I'm not trying to to say that I agree with the lesbian and gay community. What I'm trying to say is give my honest read on what I'm looking at. Some of them are even concerned about lowering of age of consent laws.
0: Mm.
1: And so this is gonna cause some tension. But listen, prognosticating the future, everybody likes to do that. I, I have no idea, only the Lord knows. What I can tell you is what I've seen so far. And it's it's not really surprising, really what this is, and 2022 is the outworking of the sexual revolution. Once you abandon moral restraint, there's really not any logical stopping place.
0: I really wanted to pick your brain and I still do on how should Christians respond to an invitation to a same sex. Oh,
1: that's a big question.
0: I can see now the issue is, broader. We really do need to lay down the groundwork, I think, for understanding this movement and understanding some of its internal struggles, but then also the friction where it comes up against the Christian worldview and some of the misunderstandings that they have about when a Christian comes up to evangelize, to share the gospel, that's going to be perceived in a particular way, almost in a way of like denying right. one's identity as opposed to yes. offering offering hope and, and peace. What are some of the one or two basic things that we need to understand in order to have those conversations?
1: I think the first thing is there's a lot of pain there. And they feel a lot of hurt and they feel a lot of pain. There are a thousand different ways that people land at an LGBTQ identity. There's no one single pathway. And uh, some people, for whatever reason, when puberty hit, they had an attraction to the same sex. They weren't looking for it, didn't expect it there are other people who wound up at a same-sex attraction in a very different way. I think they also you also need to note they have encountered some Christians who have not been kind to them, who've said perhaps the right thing in the wrong way, but sometimes they may not have even said the right thing. Hmm. And we just have to bear that. That doesn't change what right and wrong is, but what it does mean is we try to be gracious with them. And I think one of the things I would say is, have you ever heard of emotivism? Emotivism is a theory about ethical language that says when someone makes an ethical statement, one is not really making a statement that is true or false. One is only expressing their his or her opinion.
0: Right? Sure. Well, C.S. Lewis that's talked just, some about that.
1: Right. So there's that's a false theory. It's not true. But the reason why I think it gets some credence among some people is because all of us as humans, but Christians in particular, sometimes do a very poor job of expressing ourselves in the appropriate tone when we're talking about issues of great importance and with which we disagree with someone. Now, so let's be honest, all of us, whether if someone is LGBTQ who's listening or who's a born again, Christian, all of us have had someone that did the passive aggressive game with us where they poked us and poked us and poked us. And, poked us and finally we had enough. And we just say, okay, I've had enough. And they say, see, I right. told you they're angry. See the anger problem. Yeah. <laughs> and they, Of course they, they see? yeah, see, yeah. I told yeah. you. Yeah. So all of us have experienced that, but we never have the liberty to be unkind as Christians. And, and no matter how hateful someone is to us, we don't have the liberty to be unkind. Now, what our world says is, oh, yes, you guys have to be kind. You have to affirm us. <laughs> well, no, right. kind doesn't mean I'm affirming you, but kind does mean that I'm going to listen to you. And I think the challenge for us as Christians is to listen Without interrupting, because someone's going to say something to us, and they're going to hit us with a hundred different things. Most people don't present a cogent argument. They don't sit down. Here's my major premise, and here's my minor premise, and here's how I'm yeah. using the terms, and they've been distributed correctly. No, what they're going to say is they're going to. It's going to go something like this. It's more like a knife fight in the back of an alley. It's going to be more <laughs> like, Hey, you, I knew this Christian, and he was a jerk, and my mom and dad didn't accept me when I felt this same-sex attraction. And by the way, what about Fred Phelps? And you Southern Baptists are for, for, for slavery. Da, da, and, and and you're just yeah. uh huh uh huh uh huh. Yeah. And so what you have to do is listen and and say okay, you've laid a lot on me. Of all, the, one of the questions I found helpful is of everything you just said, and you know some of them it seems like are probably more important to you th- than others. Is there one that really stands out as more important? And could we just talk about that maybe for a while, and maybe just to narrow it down to one topic, and also to remember that i think i would want the listeners to know this this is not true for every lgbtq person but it is true for a lot of lgbtq per- people that there's a lot of trauma in there in, in the background it's not mm-hmm. uncommon i'm not saying it's the majority but it is more common than the average population so i would say this everyone needs to know this that the age of someone's sexual debut The context in which that occurred and the age and gender of the person with whom that occurred all have a strong organizing effect on someone's later sexual and gender identity. Mm -hmm. So I want to say that again. The age of sexual debut, the context in which it occurred, the age and gender of the person with whom it occurred all have a strong organizing effect on someone's later gender identity. Now, we're all responsible for what we've done with trauma in our life and temptations and all that sort of thing. These things happen to us, then we get to choose what to do with it. And how we're going to move forward. But I want everyone to know that the person with whom you're speaking may have had some of these things go on. Don't assume that it's true, but we should try to approach with as a generous spirit as we can, as we stand for a scriptural view, which is God designed sex for a heterosexual monogamous marriage. Now, how do we articulate that in a way that is compelling and gracious? And what's happened is, the LGBTQ community has grabbed the moral high ground in the public's thinking. The idea is love wins, and this is a loving thing. And so we have to reposition the argument to start asking questions. Well, can you ever imagine a situation when in a loving way, you would tell someone in the name of love, no, that's too far. Hmm. And so we have to start, start asking these questions. And are there any moral parameters with your love? And I think most LGBTQ BTQ people are going to agree, well, yes, there are moral parameters to my love. Okay. Well, there are to mine too. Can we talk about those and why I hold to the moral parameters for love? Love in any ordered relationship is never open-ended. It is always has some moral boundaries to it. Even God's love has moral boundaries, the Ten Commandments. So Let me try to put it this way. This is a completely different issue. Maybe this will put it in perspective. An acquaintance was working with the city union mission here in Kansas city, which is a wonderful evangelical ministry been around for a hundred years. They just do tremendous work, mm. but she was a drug and alcohol therapy part of there. And she's born again, Christian help trying to help people break from cycles of addiction. I was talking to her and I said, Hey, listen, what do I need to tell the seminary students at my school about helping someone with a drug and alcohol addiction? She says, they need to know the person that has the addiction needs to know that you love them, but your love has boundaries. Mm. She said, here's what I mean. It's, Saturday night, 12 o'clock, you wake me up because you've gotten busted and you're in jail and you want me to bail you out? And the answer is no, I'm not going to bail you out. Why? First of all, you, you need to pay the consequences for your DUI. And the other question I have is, are you safe? Well, the answer is yeah. You're basically, I know bad things can happen in jail, but all things being equal, I mean, you have a roof over your head. You're going to get a meal. You got a cot. You know, three hots and a cot is what they right. say. And she said, they have to know that. Now, I'm going to reach out to you. I'm going to come visit you in jail. We'll talk about how you got here and how you can move forward. But my love has boundaries. And sometimes she said, people are going to call you at 10 o'clock at night and say, I need to talk right now. And you're going to say, hey, listen, I've got to go to sleep. And I know you need to talk right now. I will connect with you at seven in the morning. But right now is not a good time. And you just have to set boundaries. Now, unconditional love doesn't mean that we don't have moral boundaries. Unconditional love means I'm going to love you regardless of how many of those boundaries you break. Right. <laughs> I'm going right. to keep loving you and showing right. mercy to you. That's cool. um, and to try to redefine for our culture what love is and how we think about love. Uh, Jesus loved, he had the most loving spirit of anyone ever. And yet Jesus said things like, go and sin no more. Mm.
0: <laughs> so, Yes, he, he did. Mm-hmm.
1: I think some well, things like that would be what I would suggest.
0: When Jesus talking even, with he referred to the people that he was ministering to as sick. Yeah. And he said, it's not the healthy that needed physician, yeah, it's but the, it's the sick. That's He's right. Calling that's a good them word. Yeah. So,
1: but I want to stress, we never have the liberty to be unkind. Yeah. I have the gift of sarcasm, and I could just...
0: I heard you David do, Jeremiah. Really? I couldn't yeah, tell really.
1: yeah, I heard David Jeremiah say one time, I don't think the gift of I don't think there's anywhere in the sarcasms in the Bible I thought, well, what about Elijah on the Mount uh, prophet, sure. prophet to Baal on Mount Carmel? Totally. But see, it would take someone like me that immediately has a defense for that. <laughs> <laughs> but the point being, we really never have the liberty to be unkind, and it is our moral responsibility when we stand for God's word and God's truth to do it in a kind way. And that doesn't mean we aren't firm at times. Mm-hmm. And there's, hey, I'm going to give you pushback. And the answer is no. Um, I'm not going to help you with that law. I'm not going to help you with that initiative in the court or whatever. Yeah. But I don't hate you. And I do love you. And um, to, so, we just never have the liberty to be unkind. It's really hard. It's hard for me. I'm not saying yeah. that I've arrived. I'm a work in progress.
0: As you're reframing the discussion, repositioning the discussion, I think was your term, you can ask questions like, can you ever imagine a situation in which you said, hey, that's too far. You're talking with the person who identifies right. as LGBT or Q right. or et cetera. You're right. talking with them about parameters, but also in your discussion, in showing that person love, you're establishing parameters between you and that person as well. You and your friend. Sure. Because, you would hope. hey, I, I want to love you. I want to affirm you as a person with worth, dignity, made in the image right. of God, but at the same time. There are parameters here. I can't affirm everything that you want me to affirm, because I've got a more primary love—my my love of God, my love of truth. Is that?
1: Yeah, that's true. And you have to stress that I I, I care about you. Can we have a discussion without yelling at each other? And hmm. I, it might be that you tell me some things I don't want to hear, and I share with you some things you don't want to hear. But can we agree up front that we're going to do both do our dead level best? Have you ever interviewed Rosaria Butterfield, by chance? I haven't. She came to my church one time and spoke, and then I've read her stuff, And yeah, but when she spoke at the church, this is what struck me. She, she emphasized how well the LGBTQ community does community, mm. that you have to understand a lot of these folks have been uh, kind of jacked around by people. Perhaps people didn't express an opinion to them in the kindest way. And when you have a community that's supportive and encouraging, no, this is good, and hey, we share the pain with you, and we have the same sort of hurt and the same sort of experience that you've had, th- that's really that's really emboldening. And to go out of the way at the last moment, she talked about how in the LGBTQ community, it's not uncommon to really go the extra mile to, to try to help each other. It's not mm-hmm. always true, but it was true enough in her experience. It was pretty, really profound for her. Well, that's what we're supposed to be doing as Christians is building community. I once had four men at my dinner table, this many years ago now, about 25 years ago. They were all uh, men, one had come out of the lifestyle, other three are working to come out of the lifestyle. But one of these men who was still a, a work in progress, he told me something I'll never forget. He said, the first time I ever had another man tell me that I love you and there wasn't a sexual request behind it was at a church. Hmm. And he said that was quite profound for him, that there was no agenda, but there was sincere, earnest Christian love. Another man said, man, I really love you, and I really care about you. And for him, that was wow. extremely powerful. Well, that's what we're supposed to be as Christians. Yeah. That I have a friend that left the lifestyle, and he left his lover. And uh, this was many years back. And when he left his lover, he had nowhere to go. So he loads up his car and he leaves his lover's house and he has nowhere to go. And he says, I don't know. And he's sitting in his car. Where am I going to go? And he remembered that his lover had a sister who was a born again Christian. Hmm. And so he drove to her house. He showed up at her house unannounced and said, I don't know if you know me, but I'm your your brother's lover. And I've given my life to Christ. And I've decided as a Christian that I really shouldn't be involved in this. And I have nowhere to go. And I've just left him. And they said, okay, we have a bonus room over the garage. Come in.
0: No way. Amazing. Yes,
1: that really happened. They wow. Unannounced, he showed up, and they put him up in the bonus room. And we all said, oh, what a great story, and it all worked out well. And he said, I sat in that bonus room, and I cried, and I thought, this is the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. Hmm. And he wanted to go back. Now, he's been out of the lifestyle for about 30 years now. But his initial response was, isn't this great? No, his initial response was not that. His hmm. initial response was, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done. And that's where to have people come around you and say, hey, man, we love you and we care for you, and, and we're going to walk with you through this, and you're going to have ups and downs. What I'm trying to say is that we need to show some grace and humility yeah. to people that are, that are struggling and wrestling with sin. Mm-hmm. And I want them to find mercy and grace. I think the yeah. other thing we need to be careful is sometimes we've tended to say, well, what you need to do is get married and have a heterosexual marriage. That may not be the right answer for some folks. Some folks right. mainly need to live a life of chast holiness. Yeah. And I think that might be a better answer for some people. And But why should that surprise us? We Singleness is an option for Christians.
0: That's right. And Jesus and Paul both say that.
1: Yeah, I mean, and uh, hey, I'm a Southern Baptist. Lottie Moon was single. It's okay. So, I right. mean, you could, so singleness is okay. But I think some sometimes on a bigger issue. Sometimes I think we tell young people you need if you, you need to get married so you can have sex. You don't get married so you can have sex. Right. You get married because you think that's God's will for your life. Mm-hmm. And then part of celebrating the covenant is the act of sex between the two people, right? Yeah. So, we, but we don't get married to have sex. We get married because we think this is God's will for my life and God's plan for mm-hmm. me. What I want LGBTQ people to hear, though, is that God loves you and He cares about you, and you're struggling with things I haven't wrestled with. I probably wrestled with some things you haven't wrestled with, but at the end of the day, we know what the Scripture says about these things, and we know what the Bible says. It's not vague. I haven't even got into that, but the revisionist arguments are all special pleading, and I think 40 and 50 years from now, they'll just be viewed for the nonsense that they are, honestly. Yeah. And the honest LGBTQ crowd that I've chatted with say, yeah, I know what the Bible says. And I know the Bible says this is wrong. I just disagree with the Bible. Okay, well, that's a more honest conversation.
0: Right. I'd much rather have that conversation anyway. Yeah, that's right. Because, yeah. That's right. Give me someone who disagrees yeah. with me or yeah. disagrees Matthew, with the Bible. Have you
1: heard of Matthew Vines? I guess oh, your yes. listeners have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I don't know why but, but he's gotten so much... That. Well, he was from young man from Wichita, Kansas, dropped out of college so he could write his book and go around telling everybody that it's okay to be a born-again Christian and homosexual. So he'd be a revisionist. But he is a revisionist. But mm-hmm. here's the challenge. He's not saying anything new. All his arguments are just dumbed-down forms of other more academic-level EQ theorists that have said things and tried to reinvent scripture. So he's not saying anything new. He's just mm-hmm. a very winsome. He has a very winsome personality. He's very friendly. He's gregarious. He's outgoing. He's a handsome guy and all this sort of stuff. And so he he just winsome in his approach, right. but he's not saying anything new. And this guy, Boswell, that taught at Yale, he I'm was several decades before before Matthew Vines. Oh, I see. Okay, so he's taking his yeah. ideas,
0: popularizing okay.
1: And there's nothing wrong with being a popularizer. But I say that all these arguments have been answered in a very, very robust manner. So I think a better conversation is, okay, we know what the Bible says. And if I'm talking with an LGBTQ neighbor, okay, we know what the Bible says. What are we going to do with that?
0: So Mm -hmm. imagine that your neighbor invites you to come to his same-sex wedding. Or we could even get more personal. Let's say it's a relative. Let's say it's your own child. That's right. What do you do? do?
1: First of all, I'm glad you asked that question because it's where clear biblical principles interact with the relationships that we have. And that's where it gets tough because it's not just some hypothetical person off in another state or somewhere. It's someone I know and someone I love. Mm -hmm. First of all, let's be clear. The Bible says or the Bible teaches this is not right. Uh, And so this person is doing something that should not be done. I'm just going to assume that we can agree on that as evangelical Christians. If we can, agree, if we don't agree on that point, I can't move forward in the discussion much because right. the answer I'm going to give is going to be based on that. So let's assume that we agree that the Bible teaches this should not be done. And if someone has a same-sex wedding, they're doing something that shouldn't be done. Mm-hmm. But the real the question is, should I go somewhere where someone's doing something that shouldn't be done? I will tell you, I'm, I'm not going to go. And what I would try to do is... Explain to my LGBTQ neighbor or friend, I love you, I care about you. This is how I see things. And I love you. I can't give approval to this action or to what you're doing. Thus, I'm not going to go. Other Christians, I'm willing to grant that other Christians might, for reasons related to evangelism, we want to keep the door open. They might say, well, I want to go out of a desire to keep the door open with this person so that we can keep having a conversation, because I'm hoping that the last line has not been written in this story yet, and I want to Mm -hmm. be able to speak truth into their life. That might be a possibility. The challenge is it goes to motive, and the person has to ask themselves this, am I really doing this because I really think it's wrong, and I really want to witness to them, and I'm trying to keep the door open to witness? Or am I doing this because I don't want to pay the price for standing for what I know the Bible teaches? Right. And I can't answer that for someone, that goes to motive. There's a lot of things like that in the Christian life I can't answer for someone, mm-hmm. but it goes to motive.
0: You're right, and, and Scripture says that anything that's not done in faith is sin. Right. So if you're violating your conscience to go there and you, know, you believe that it's wrong to go and yet you go for a subordinate reason, even out of evangelism, mm-hmm. if you believe that it's wrong to go and you go out of a desire to, to evangelize, that's still wrong.
1: I think that what I would ask for is, is there some way where I can speak truth or show that I care for you without coming to the wedding? Is there any way that I can show you that I love you without coming to the wedding? Would there be any way that I could do that? And if the answer is no, well, okay. But that would be my question. Is there some way that I show that I am concerned for you? might be an act of service. Can I rake your leaves on a fall day? I'm not kidding. Sure, yeah. I mean, completely serious. Can I serve you in yeah. some way? Can I be the hands of feet in Christ to you without coming where the ceremony is saying, we're joining these two people together? And let's be honest, as Christians, it's not a wedding. It's a mimicry. Right. These are not real marriages. They are mimicries of marriage. Marriage is defined one way by God.
0: As Christians, we have to get our definitions from scripture. If we don't, yeah it's we're being arbitrary and subject and uh, subjective
1: we are and there's lots of issues like this the lgbtq is the one that's discussed a lot right now
0: mm-hmm. but
1: if i could find some way that i could improve in in my interaction with other people all sorts of lost people so that i'm talking to them in a way that shows that i respect them as a person and i want to listen to what they say and when I listen to them, I'm not just listening, waiting to say something next, but I'm actually listening, right. trying to digest what they're saying. I yeah. think that's my goal. Well, that's all. That's good for all ethical interaction. And if we're going to make any differences, salt and light, it's going to take a lot of really hard relationships, and the relationships are going to be uh, fabulously more difficult than the sort of relationships Christians had a hundred years ago. Yeah. But by God's grace. Other Christians have survived this and navigated this. At some point, you just have to trust the Holy Spirit to show you what to do, what to say at certain moments. We just don't know what to say. We have to trust He's going to teach us. I think sometimes I'm a Baptist, and sometimes we get afraid of talking about the Holy Spirit. I once met a retired (laughs) president of the Assembly of God Theological Seminary, and he said, Dr. Branch, I think you Baptists believe in the Father, Son, and what's-his-name. And... uh, (laughs) he was being very gregarious and friendly with me, but mm-hmm. I took his critique. Yeah. We do need to listen to the Lord. He speaks to us and he teaches us. We have to remember that Jesus died for these folks. And hey, there the, the atonement is available and uh, forgiveness of sins is available. And Amen. to never underestimate what Christ can do in a life. I think sometimes we underestimate that.
0: For folks who want to take the next step in studying your work on this subject, oh. can you tell us about your book, where to find it, And what do we need to know about it?
1: Yes, I wrote it. I've written it for the layperson. The book is intended not for the academy. I wrote it for the average person sitting in a pew on Sunday morning trying to think through some things and trying to give them something to to chew on and meditate on and – if they want to go deeper, there are many wonderful ethics books of quite substantive in nature. <laughs> My book is for someone who doesn't know much about some of these issues, would like to get an introduction to them. And I've written it in a format that's meant to be user-friendly, that's not intimidating. And then if someone wants to go on and do more work, they can do it with one of more, those more substantive works written by people that I respect greatly. So it's, it's meant for that. It's an easy read. And might be a good book of the month club for a church if a pastor ever has one of those.
0: Well, it's, it's very good. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you again for coming on the show.
1: Hey, I really enjoyed being on your show. It's really a hoot. You seem like an interesting person.
0: Well, I've been called worse, so thank you. <laughs> <I
1: appreciate it. laughs> well, I've been called a lot worse. I've been called a lot worse. I'm really honored you, you had me, and I really wish you a blessed
0: evening. So now you know. Society has gone from viewing LGBTQ people as a hated minority to a privileged minority. Men will have an advantage over women in athletics because we're just designed differently by our creator. The LGBTQ movement has a darker side that the media is not telling us about, but we can share the good news of the gospel with them by loving them. And there are inherent contradictions and confusion in the movement, such as between lesbians and self-proclaimed transgender people. It's not really a cohesive community, but... The movement is united in opposition to biblical ethical teaching. We can reach them by setting clear, healthy boundaries, even while loving them unconditionally. There is no quick fix in terms of discipling new believers who have same-sex attraction, and marriage might not always be the answer. Sometimes it's celibacy and singleness. Despite the wishes of the biblical revisionists, their arguments go against the plain teaching of Scripture. And because the Bible is clear, you should not go to a same-sex wedding, but you should find other ways to show love to your LGBTQ friends and neighbors in Jesus' name. I know not everyone's going to agree with that, but that's the position we're taking. You can do this without affirming their sin any more than you would affirm any other sin. I encourage you to go and pick up J. Allen Branch's book, 50 Ethical Questions, You can get it on Amazon or at Lexham Press's website. And thank you, Lexham, for sending me a copy. Okay, now, let me tell you about our free community. Do you want to build a worldview legacy for your family? Then join the Think Squad group now. Now is the time to become the worldview leader your family and your church need. Get connected to others who are on the same journey as you and get access to the resources that we share and stuff to help you pass on your faith. Join the Think Squad group. All you have to do is open Facebook and search for Think Squad. That's T H I N K S Q U A D. Answer these short membership questions, and that is all it takes. Thanks for listening to Worldview Legacy. This episode was produced by yours truly, Joel Sedicase, that's me, and is a production of the Think Institute. We equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message. And we are based by God's grace. Speaking as a Baptist, one Baptist to another, what about taking it out of the realm of same-sex marriages? What about an infant baptism? Let's say yeah. a Presbyterian baptism. Yeah, I never baptism. thought of that. Because you and I would probably agree that's not a real baptism.
1: No, I don't think it is. Do you go? Well, I've never been invited. Uh, I've, (laughs) (laughs) I've never been invited to an infant baptism.
0: How would you navigate that?
1: Oh, sometimes it's just better to find some gracious way to say, hey, listen, could I just send you a gift? to celebrate the birth of your child and let you know how much I love you guys. Mm. And if they ask me, i say, yeah, I don't think it's a baptism and I love <laughs> you, And but I'm not I'm not coming to that. Hey, let me send you a gift card to Applebee's and I hope you'll have a take uh-huh. on me, but I'm yeah. not coming. We've gone from LGBTQ to infant baptism because they're so closely connected. <laughs>
0: right. Um, you know that people are going to listen to this and they're going to go, what Right.